Well, one of the, as, as I was thinking and preparing for this message, one of the, the more prominent topics in Scripture, uh, especially in the New Testament, is this idea of being born again, uh, is of new life, especially in the West, especially in the evangelical community. And before we move on the ser- into the sermon and see some of the defining marks of what I believe Scripture teaches about this, I think it's important to recognize that even those who are of uh, non-religion or of a uh, non-faith persuasion uh, find themselves in this pursuit of this idea as well. And it's, this has kind of been a narrative this morning as we've heard of this pursuit of new life. Uh, for some, new life may look like the change in their geographical surroundings, uh, maybe a change in career, in friends, maybe in the way that we look or how we look. For others, this new life may look like fulfilling a 12-step program to becoming a better version of yourself. Uh, For others, it may look like just doing away with the past and looking on uh, to the wisdom of this world and following the greatest of teachers, the greatest philosophies, the greatest things where we feel that if we could only heed uh, to these philosophies and wisdom of this world, then maybe there would be new life for us. And this is especially relevant as we watch the video, as we have spoken this morning, that maybe not all of us here, but some of us, we think about New Year's resolutions that we seldom fulfill. Most of us anyway. I I was thinking, um, a friend of mine, this was a few years ago, and he told me that uh, we worked out together, we played basketball, pretty athletic guy. I'm not saying that myself, I'm saying that about him. Uh, And he said, this year I'm going to run the 100 meter in under 11 seconds. We kind of joked and we laughed about it and he said, okay, deal's on. He said, if I don't do it, uh, I'm going to take you to out for dinner anywhere in Toronto. I said, the deal's on. And so months went by and we continued to play basketball and I asked him, How, how's that going? He's, don't worry about it. And a year went by and uh, he didn't run it in under 11 seconds. So he took me out for a wonderful meal at Copacabana on Eglinton and uh, Anyways, the reason, I, the reason I share this story is, maybe as humorous as it sounds, is, you know, we, we, we uh, as a society, we eagerly desire to make these goals, to build a better life, to shape our lives for the new, to press forward, and maybe to some degree we fulfill what we set out for. But often, if you're anything like me, the narratives of our lives can be filled with inconsistencies and shortcomings, and for the Christian, that may be true in even how you relate to God. And so, this morning where I, I want to unpack, and as we look through our scriptures, a few weeks ago we introduced this man named Saul. Later on in Acts, we find uh, that his name is Paul. And Saul was the zealous religious guy. History says that he was probably no more than five feet tall, and yet at his word, he was committing Christians to prison and even having them killed. And yet one day, on the road to Damascus, Saul had this incredible experience with Jesus that left him blind for three days and eventually spoken to by a man named Ananias and he said that you are God's instrument who will proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and that you will discover many things that you will suffer for my name's sake. This once religious extremist, a murderer, a madman, had come face to face with his creator and he received this new life. He was born again. He was reborn. A life that would alter the course of human history. Now, I don't expect many of us here, if those of you who subscribe to the Christian faith, had an experience quite like this, but it's interesting that later on in Paul's life, he says something in 1 Timothy 1.16. He says this, 
He says that the mercy that he had received, the worst of sinners, was so that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I think what Paul's saying here is that his experience of receiving this new life and the fruit to follow is an example to the ordinary believer, to the ordinary disciple of what this Christian life looks like. In fact, other places he calls Christians and people of faith to follow him as he follows Jesus. And so this morning as I unpack three things uh, in looking at the life of Paul after this new life experience, I want to unpack just a few of the marks of this new life in the life of a disciple. These evidences in the life of a believer. And, and just by, I guess just by preface and uh, maybe just a side note here, I don't think that this is exhaustive of all the marks of a believer, but in staying true to our text this morning, this is where we're deriving them from. And so let's, let's look at our first point this morning. Firstly, a disciple or a person who follows Christ loves the people of Jesus. This is one of the marks that we see in the life of Saul. He loves the family, the people of Jesus. Saul, who was once a persecutor of the church, is now a participant. It was only days before this, Saul was dragging Christians from their homes, from their living rooms, exhaling murderous threats against the disciples. And now we find in one of our first verses here, he's baptized into a community of believers, and he's joining the community of disciples at Damascus. This incredible change took place in his heart. Saul was no longer this angry man seeking to murder the Christian community, but now he found himself part of a new family. He loved, he was grown to love, and desired to be a part of. And it's interesting as we read on, at such an early stage of his life, as Jews were seeking to kill him in the synagogues, as he was proclaiming the Son of God, we'll get to in a second, it says that actually his disciples, his disciples, helped him escape from these angry mob crowds. I can only imagine as Paul had been discipled into a community, was, was fellowshipping amongst the body of believers, it says at such an early stage that his disciples, and I don't want to speculate too much, but I wonder how much Paul, at such an early stage of his Christian life, was already beginning to pour into the lives of others, already beginning to disciple those around him. And this is part of the beautiful work God does in us when he adopts us into his family. We're not meant to be Christians. In the Western world, there's, such, there's this notion of individualism. Where to be a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that I need to be part of a body or part of a church. I, myself alone, praying, reading my Bible, that this is enough. And yet this would have been a foreign idea to Paul. We're welcomed into a family where we grow together, we learn together, we bear each other's burdens together, and together as the body of Christ, we become the hands and feet of Jesus to this world. And I think Saul might have had every reason to stay away from the church. In fact, as we read later on in our passage this morning, as he, sought, as he came to Jerusalem and sought to join the disciples, they were afraid of him. They didn't actually believe that maybe he was a true disciple. And yet we see that it was such a priority for Saul, for Paul to join the church. And there's something I think that we can learn from this today. As in verse 28, or in verse 26, that he attempted to join the disciples. And the, and the point is this, church is important. 
Now, for those of you who are thinking, well, church is just relegated to the Sunday morning service where we get together for two hours, I'm meaning something more than this. I'm meaning the fact that he's committing, that we are committing ourselves to a local church, a place where the gospel is central, a place where we hear the words of Scripture, a place where broken people come together in the grace of God and bear each other's burdens. We bear the burdens of each other. I was reading a quote this week by a, a man who's passed away now. His name is Edmund Clowney. And he says that Christians in community must show the world not merely family values, but the bond of the love of Christ. Philosopher Francis Schaeffer said that one of the greatest apologetics, one of the greatest ways the world will see that Jesus is true, that he is alive, is our love for one another. The way that we demonstrate that, the way that we embody that, imperfectly by the grace of God, but nonetheless embody it. You see, Christianity calls us more to merely exist with one another or to tolerate one another. It calls us to love the most unlovable, the enemy, to extend grace to those we feel who are unworthy. It calls us to give our lives for one another. After all, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is one of the early distinctives, as you see in the church, that the love that they have for one another, the love to adopt, the love to do good works, the love to, to be selfless within their communities was one of the, early, the, the marks of the church and still is today. The only commonality between, between any person in the family of Jesus is that we're saved by faith in Jesus. And what a wonderful hope that is. No matter what background we're coming from, no matter all these distinctives, the common denominator that shatters our entitlement, our judgment towards one another, our pride, is that we're saved by His grace. Even people like Saul. And so we must look to Christ and see, and I, and I believe that Saul, Saul saw this, the patience that Christ extended towards him, that this church is filled, people like myself, dysfunctional, broken, messy people, and yet in the midst of it, God calls this His bride. He sets His affection upon it. This is the place where He shares His glory. And as I had said earlier, as Saul, maybe despite the many reservations that he had of joining the church, maybe they won't accept me. These people are afraid of me. He didn't have any red carpet treatment into the church. Yet he learned by the grace of God to love the people of God. We see this continued on, not just by his doctrine that he shares with all the churches of Asia Minor, but he gave of his life, his time, his energy, self-sacrificing. But one of the things I think is interesting is that we don't just see this in the life of Paul. We also learn in our passage this morning the church's posture towards Paul, also in the heart of the Jerusalem church. And it was a man named Barnabas, and he took Paul to the apostles and declared what had happened to him, this incredible experience that he had. And as he was received by the apostles, he had full reign. He went in and out among the people of Jerusalem. They had to forgive this man who had been killing Christians. They had to accept this man into their fellowship. And I wonder, I wonder for many of us this morning, maybe have been hurt by the church, Maybe the thought of walking closely with another Christian is just is a thought that you can't fathom. It's, it's hard for you to be vulnerable, to bear with one another's burdens. 
You may want to come to church, but that individually you just want to stay closed off to yourself. And my prayer this morning, as I get you, as I sympathize with you, is to offer that pain to Jesus. Allow him to, to open up your heart again, to become vulnerable to his church, to his bride. Allow him to let that love consume your heart for your enemy. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. But to at least think about this radical call of love that the Christian, that the church is, that, that's, that does so imperfectly, at times it's just seen as bigoted, intolerant, maybe anything but love. But the call of Jesus, and I believe Paul was seeing this, was to love, was to love the church. And so, so we see one of the marks of being a disciple is loving the broken and yet growing family of Jesus. But there's another distinguishing characteristic that I want to look at this morning. Not just one who, uh, who is a participant in the church, not just one who, who loves the people of Jesus, but also bears witness to Jesus. We see Paul not only as a participant in the church, but also as a proclaimer. It's, just, it's incredible because soon after his incredible experience that he had on the road to Damascus, he was witnessing about Jesus. He had become consumed with this person of Jesus. It was all about what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he has done. This Jesus that he once persecuted, this Jesus that he once went and after believers to kill them, he was now worshiping him. He was now proclaiming him in the synagogues. The furthest place that anybody would have thought this man saw where would have found him had now this Christ-centered reality of proclaiming what I love what the scripture says here as the Son of God. The first place in the book of Acts where actually Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, actually mentioned as the Son of God. And I think that there's some significance there. Paul wasn't just speaking some worldview or how Jesus was just a wise teacher or how he was just this great miracle worker. He was talking about the Son of God. And many commentators want to point to the fact that the reason why Luke mentions here the Son of God and how Saul was proclaiming the Son of God was it was in relation to the obedience of his Father. That Jesus was, though a man fully uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, was completely obedient to his Father. The one who looked obedient to his Father. The one who did not sin. The one who his Father looked upon and said, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And Paul, getting up in the synagogues, once a zealous Jew for the law, saying, No matter how religious you are, no matter how many good things you believe that you've done, it is not enough. There is one righteous one. There is only one who has gone before you that can make you right before God. This speaks to me as a believer because so often we seek through our deeds, through the things that I've done, that surely God will accept me on the merit and basis of what I've done. And Paul is undercutting that truth and he's saying, there's one Son of God. There was one who was obedient before the Father, who satisfies the Father, who is enough in, in accepting Him, believing upon Him. You also stand as one who is righteous and accepted by God. But even those here this morning who think, well, that's, that's not the truth for me. That's, you know, this isn't something that I subscribe to. Maybe I'm the furthest thing from religion. 
And I want to propose to us this morning that even those who aren't religious or Christian seek to find their salvation in something. To find your salvation in your career, maybe wealth, maybe your intellect, your service to the community, in all of these things. But what happens when life inevitably takes those things from us? What happens when we face failure? What happens when we lose our intellect, when we're no longer able to serve in the community, when we lose our career, when the carpet is ripped up underneath us and we find that our foundation is not as steady as we once thought? See, Saul now lived a Christ-centered existence and he bore witness to it. In fact, later on, he goes on in his letters to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was consumed this person of Christ. But he wasn't just proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus. He was also reasoning and proving that Jesus is the Christ. And I think there's something significant that I don't want us to miss here. That as he grew, as he increased in strength, he confounded the Jews, proving that Jesus was the Christ. And my assumption is that probably nobody here, maybe a few of us, uh, will stand up in a synagogue and be reasoning with Jews uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. But I think we learn a lesson that he's speaking to them on the premise of their own beliefs. I think as we, as we live in this postmodern, moral, relativistic culture, I think we need to immerse, I don't think, I know we need to immerse our lives in the Scriptures to study our culture and be willing to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. Corporately, I think it means as a church we need to engage the issues of our culture. Showing how the Bible isn't just these old words that are irrelevant, but that they're authoritative and they're relevant to speak to the issues of our world. And individually, I believe that God has called us to all different spheres of life. Some may be called to stand up here to proclaim the word, but we're all, no matter where we are, called to make Jesus known and beautiful in our workplaces, in our families, our neighborhoods, as we build relationships with those around us, as we share our journey of faith, proving that Jesus is truly better than anything else. Lastly, what we see is that Paul's witness is bold and passionate. As we see here in Jerusalem, he went in and out from Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Remember, there was a time... Years back, when Jesus became so real to me, became such an overflow of my heart that I couldn't help just telling everybody I knew that Jesus was real, that Jesus makes a difference, that Jesus is not just an ideology, but that he really does save, he really does transform. And I'm not just trying to reduce this to just some emotional exercise in our lives because I think it's expressed differently. But do we have that overflow that we... We love God. We know what he's done for us. That we can't help but share what we've seen and heard. You see, another mark of a follower of Jesus is inevitably bearing witness to Jesus. We see it in the early days of Paul and actually throughout his entire life. He went through all of Asia Minor in two years proclaiming because he was so convinced in his heart that Jesus wasn't just, again, this, this other teacher or just... This wasn't just a new trend or fad, but that this was eternally important. And I ask us this morning, has your witness grown cold or discouraged? Draw near to him today. 
See his affection towards you. See the great love the Father has lavished upon you. Allow that grace to be an overflow of your witness wherever you may be called today, through word and through deed. We don't just see this. We don't just see him as one who proclaims either, though. The last mark that I want to speak about this morning is the mark of suffering for Jesus. And I think that this is something challenging for us to grapple with at times because as a society, we don't do well with suffering. We do our best to escape suffering. We do our best to mask it with whatever we can. And even in the church, we have people saying to live your best life now, that to follow Jesus means to be rich, to be wealthy, to not experience any suffering. And the funny thing about that is we see that nowhere in the pages of Scripture, including in the life of Saul, that when he had, he had met God on the road to Damascus, God had promised him through Ananias, and he says that you're, you're chosen, you're going to be my instrument, and I'm going to show you many things that you will suffer for my name. But was this just true to Paul, or again, was his... Was his testimony and life of salvation, was this an example to us? And I believe that it was because nearing the end of his life in 2 Timothy, he makes this radical claim and he said that anybody who's going to take up their cross and follow Jesus, anybody who desires to live a godly life will suffer. Will suffer for Jesus. And in a second, I want to share a few things that I think we learned from this. But it's incredible. If you just, as you leave here today... Go through 2 Corinthians 11. Go through a few different places in the scripture where you see the suffering that Paul experienced. Shipwrecked as he's on his way to share the gospel. Beaten. Thrown in jail. Experiencing famine. Nakedness. All of these things. How could he find Jesus so worthy to suffer for and go through any of these things? Because the truth be told, I feel like in the West is that if we were to experience that type of suffering, we might pick up our bags and leave and say, maybe Jesus isn't worthy enough for this. This is, this is too much. This is too radical. I'm okay to sit in a church, but to suffer in this way, I, I, I can't handle this. And yet Paul found Jesus worthy enough. In fact, he went as far to say that through this weakness, God's power was made perfectly known, expressed in him. That he actually boasted in his sufferings. That he actually rejoiced in his sufferings because he said, I could be that much closer to Jesus. That God's power could work that much mightily through me. He wasn't seeking to escape it, to mask it. Actually, it was something perfectly orchestrated by God for his mission in his life and I believe in ours. I think there's a few things that we learn from the suffering. First, as I... I think I've been getting the point across is be prepared to suffer for Jesus as your witness is known in your workplace it might not look like the flogging and the famine and the nakedness that Paul might have gone through I think more so in our culture it looks like social rejection it can look like looking unsophisticated you really believe this this myth the scripture says do not think it's strange when these trials come upon you I think that we also learn that God is sovereign through this. That one of the purposes that, I, that God orchestrated through the suffering is that he wanted to conform Saul to the image of Christ. That he wants to conform us 
to the image of Jesus. And as I had said before, through his weakness, through Saul's weakness, through the narrative of his life, he would experience the pure power and grace of God. And lastly, what an incredible witness it was, not just to the early church, but even to us today, to see a man who suffered so much at the hands of, uh, of these mobs, people who sought to kill him to silence his mouth. It placed the courage in the life of the believer that Jesus was really worth it. How, how, how could he have come to such a place where he was so convicted in his heart? I believe that we see in Scripture that Saul knew that his life was no longer his own, that God had chosen him, that God had chosen him. This was more than just the sweet doctrine that I believe that he knew in his mind, but that he, he knew that his life was no longer his own, that nothing could separate him from the love of God, not famine or sword or distress or persecution, but that God's grip on him was stronger forever than, than Saul's grip would be on, on God. He knew the God who went before him, the one who didn't just stand up in synagogues and proclaim who the Father was and escape from it, but the one who was actually tried and murdered and killed. Saul's Savior didn't just face rejection by men and women, but he actually took upon the sin and shame of the world. I think that Paul had this glorious vision of his Savior, the one who went before him, the one who suffered the greatest injustice, the greatest suffering, because he loved him. Because this God loves the world. Because he sent his son. He didn't leave us to himself. And I wonder if we became gripped with that truth. For the Christian today, who's maybe experiencing hard times, I encourage you to contemplate the wounds of Christ. To look to him again. To see his great love for you. To consider it a joy that you're counted worthy to suffer for, for Jesus. It's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's producing something in us. And more than anything, it makes Jesus beautiful and it glorifies Him. It's interesting at the end of the passage today, as Paul went off and he's taken from the brothers down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, it says the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. And so we've seen the church that has grown and multiplied through suffering. But now we're taken to a place where the church, as the persecution and suffering seem to have ended, or for a little while anyway, the church was being built up and had peace. And so for those this morning, as a church, maybe it's a time of peace in your life. It's a time where you, you say, well, I, I can't, the, the message of suffering, that's not necessarily resonating with, with me. It's a time of peace. It's a time where you're recognizing that God has been good to you. That year 2017 is a time where you see, man, the blessings of God have been rich in my life. I encourage you, rejoice in what God has done in you. Use it to build up the church. Give of yourself unconditionally. Don't just turn to God in times of crisis, but grow in His grace that He has for you right now. And maybe you're here this morning and this message of Christianity is something that you're exploring, you're thinking about. 
I think the inevitability of all of us here is that you will experience suffering. It may not be suffering for the witness of Jesus, but there is a real suffering. And I want to say this to you, and there, there's, there's tough news before there's good news. Is that this world is filled with brokenness and filled with sin. And the truth that is echoed is that there's no escaping the suffering. And the Bible is abundantly clear that there's a suffering that we face in this world, but there's also a suffering that we face from the wrath of God. A suffering of, of living in eternity apart from God. It may be hard to believe that, but just hear me for a second here. This message of good news is that we don't have to face suffering in, in, a, in a way without hope now, but even into eternity. That the hope of the gospel, the hope of the good news, is that Jesus steps into our broken humanity and he redeems. He welcomes us into, our, into his family. On the basis of Christ, He accepts you, He forgives you. And I plead with you today, even as you're thinking about this, maybe with the mustard seed of faith in your heart, to ask Jesus to be real to you, to ask Him for faith, to ask Him for this great hope that we get to spend all of eternity with Him. It's the, it's the, greatest, it's the greatest hope unimaginable. It almost seems too good to be true. But this is the good news of the gospel. And so we see Paul as one who participates and loves the body. We see how he grows into someone where a mark of, the disciple, mark of a disciple is to bear witness as this overflowing grace of what he's done in our lives. And lastly, it is to suffer, but it is to suffer with the great hope that our Savior loves us, that he holds us, and that he is sovereign over our lives. Let's pray this morning. Lord, wherever we are today, we pray that the sweet message of grace, Lord, would influence our hearts once again, that we know that we are not our own for the Christian, that we are yours. And help us to live for you, to die for you, to give our lives totally for you. And for those of us, Lord, who struggle with faith, for those of us who are just exploring what it might mean to receive this new life as a Christian, Lord, I pray that you would be with those today. Be with our family. Be with our friends. Be with those who it's just hard to believe and we ask for faith. Lord, we ask for faith to believe that this isn't just another story or another historical document, but, Lord, a life-shattering truth that changes our hearts from the inside out. Help us to see how beautiful you truly are. We pray this today in your name. Amen.